0: Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I started Self Work almost six years ago to extend the walls of my practice to lots of different groups of you, those who are comfortable with therapy, those who might have just been diagnosed with something, or maybe those that are a little skeptical but are just curious enough or perhaps unhappy enough, sadly, to listen and be looking for answers. I'm thrilled today to introduce you to a new sponsor of Self Work. Not only have I used their product for over three years, in fact, just yesterday, I was having a hard time moving my neck and I applied some of their salve. It was so much better. But it suddenly dawned on me that I should talk to them about a collaboration. So, voila, here it is. Let me introduce you to Ozark Mountain Medicine's fantastic CBD products and their offer to you. Diagnosed with degenerative disc in my back when I was in my 20s, I've long been a seeker of alternative ways to help reduce inflammation, and I can't believe that the best product I've ever found is produced here in Northwest Arkansas. Ozark Mountain Medicine, located on a small boutique farm in the Ozark Mountains under the careful watch of CBD guru Bill Morgan, is a grassroots operation which produces some of the highest quality CBD available on the market. Unlike marijuana which contains THC, which is what makes it mood-altering, CBD isn't the same and is legal in all states. Ozark Mountain Medicine's products contain at least 16 varieties of hemp, where other CBD products may use only one. Think of it as a healing gumbo for your joint and muscle aches, and you've got the picture. What's most important to me and to you is that it works. I've been told at least three times in my life that I needed to be reassessed for back surgery, And three times I've kept walking, getting massages, and for the last three years, steadfastly using this product. You can take it orally in tincture form, or calming salves are available, which is what I prefer. The other benefits of taking it include immune support, increased relaxation, reduced anxiety, and improved sleep. So here's their fabulous offer for self-work listeners. All you have to do is use this promo link, ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work, and you'll receive 10% off your order. I never suggest a product to you that I haven't used myself, and I reap this one's benefits each and every day. That code, again, is ozarkmountainmedicine.com selfwork Sometimes the best solutions are right under your nose. So try a bit of Ozark Mountain Medicine CBD and see for yourself. I'm so hoping some of you will try their products. I promise you, they are outstanding. We're delving into my self-work email bag again this week, and the questions you've brought me will resonate with many of you. You know, I love hearing from all of you because it gives me a chance to give back to those of you who are listeners in a very specific way. What are the topics? The relationship between self-esteem and lying? What to do with things that are left behind by someone who died? And this listener's father had died by suicide, so trigger warning here. We'll mention suicide in this episode, so be careful. And last, is there a danger if you take medication for depression that it will numb you to your feelings? I also want to quickly remind you that Perfectly Hidden Depression, the book that was published back in 2019, has now been published in Poland, the Czech Republic, South Korea, and the Netherlands, Belgium, or basically it's been published in the Dutch language. And foreign rights have been bought by publication houses in Turkey, Russia, China, and Germany. Some of you have written to me from those countries, so I wanted you to know that you can read about Perfectly Hidden Depression in your native language. Another sponsor we have today is Athletic Greens, another product I use daily, and we'll hear from them later in the broadcast. So welcome or welcome back to Self Work. Please do whatever it is you enjoy doing while listening, and I'll hope that one or more of these topics will resonate with you. Or you can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com yourself, or leave a voice message for me on the SpeakPipe app that you can find in the show notes as well as on my website, drmargaretrutherford.com. Let's take the first question of the day. Is there any connection between lying and low self-esteem? I often lie because I'm afraid of another person's reaction, but it is dumb, and I always get caught, I hate myself for it. There's the question. First of all, I think this listener answered their own question when they said, I hate myself for it. That's definitely low self-esteem or even self-loathing talking. There are lots of reasons why you might lie, and there's lots of information about it online. I found a shorter but really excellent article in Forbes written by Christine Commaford, and I'll have that for you in the show notes. It's called Why We Lie and the Neuroscience Behind It, but I'm going to quote some from it. She says, we lie to save face, to avoid hurting other people's feelings, to impress others, to shirk responsibility, to hide misdeeds, act as a social lubricant, to prevent conflict, to get out of work, and many more reasons. She quotes a psychologist from the University of Virginia, Dr. DePaulo, who has confirmed that lying is simply a condition of life. In her research, she found that both men and women lie in approximately, listen to this, a fifth Of their social exchanges lasting 10 or more minutes. Wow. And over the course of a week, we deceive about 30% of people we have one on one interactions with. Wow, again. Women are more likely to tell altruistic lies to avoid hurting other people's feelings, and men are more likely to lie about themselves. DePaulo found that men lie more often to impress. A typical conversation between two guys contains about eight times as many self-oriented lies as it does lies about others. Sorry, guys. That's what the research says. And the most common lie? Try guessing. I'll wait a second. Think about it. Okay. It's to get out of work. Many folks don't regret lying unless they get caught, which may be the case for this listener's plight. But you may get caught Whether that's because you can't remember exactly what you said or what fib you told, it's kind of a slippery slope. And let's not forget, you can lie by what's called commission or by omission. What's the difference? Lying by commission, by telling something that's untrue, is one type. It's very intentional. You say something that's a falsehood, but you say it's true. But lying by omission can be just as hurtful. That's when you lie by not saying something that's the truth or is reality for you. It is the absence of truth. For example, I've had people tell me that they think they're not doing any harm to their relationship because their partner doesn't know they're having an affair. It's secret. It's not talked about. So it's doing no harm. My opinion is that's not only lying to yourself, but you're lying by omission to your partner. And we can do this, obviously, in a lot of ways. Let's say your partner asks you to pick up some milk, and you forgot, and you just don't bring it up. (laughs) So you don't walk in and go, you know, I forgot about the milk, and I'm so sorry. You just sort of don't tell the truth. Now, that's an obviously silly kind of thing, but you can understand the spectrum. So basically, what these folks are saying in research is not all lying is bad, And most of us do lie to a certain extent. So what should you do if you hate yourself for lying like our listener? It's interesting to me that as we get older, we tend to lie far less. That's shown in the research as well. So maybe that's a clue. What changes with age that might change the rate at which we lie? Well... You don't invest as much in what others think of you, so you don't need to avoid conflict. You're more willing to let others see into the real you. You've had more experience with relationships ending, so maybe you're not afraid of that. So here are two things I'd recommend. First, do some work on what you fear, whether that's rejection, conflict, being seen as aggressive rather than assertive. What could it be? Then two, begin by being more honest with yourself. If you lie to yourself, if you don't take responsibility for the good and the not so good that you do, you'll likely not be able to say your truth to others. So if you lie to yourself, you're more prone to lie to others. And three, practice telling that truth, your truth, to people you trust. A friend, a therapist, a colleague. If you're seen and cared for for who you are, that's a great way to start being more honest. Here's the second email. I hope my email finds you well. At first, I want to thank you for all your work. By accident, I found a podcast done with Joanna Goutral and started researching the PhD or Perfectly Hidden Depression topic. I was thinking, should I or shouldn't I write to you? My curiosity, one, I wanted to ask about your opinion or thoughts on a tough issue for me. I cannot talk about this with anyone close, as there is no one who understands. Well, She's from Poland, and in Poland, no one talks about the big S. And she's talking about suicide. Here's her question. When, in your opinion, is it time to let go? And why, by thinking of destroying my father's suicide note, do I feel like I'm doing something bad, like I'm going to lose him again? Here's a little bit of background, again, from the listener. My dad killed himself 10 years ago in our home. I remember the funeral. The whole church was full. Almost 400 people showed up asking the same question, why? He was always the helper, giver, and his job was helping people. When he asked for help, it was usually for me, my mom, or my brother, never for him. Everyone was astonished on that day as no one could see it coming. Afterward, we had numerous interviews at the prosecutor's office and had to read over and over again his suicide letter and respond to questions on whether someone forced him. It was rough. I did not have the possibility to grieve as later on my mother got severely depressed. I tried to help her as much as I could, but she died five years after him. Two years ago, while checking the documents in now my home, I found Dad's suicide note and one more dated one month prior with detailed information on what needed to be done, what insurance has to be paid, who can help with what. I was and still am overwhelmed, but I thought maybe destroying them would help me to move on. But I don't know. How can I know if I'm really ready to let him go? I'd appreciate your feedback. So here's my answer. I've found that this dilemma is so much a part of the grief process that it should almost be included in the cycle itself. I might call it letting go. It fits right in there with anger and sadness and fear and acceptance. What do you do with their things, the things that they left behind, the things they cherished, the things that held memories for you of them and hold memories for you of them? But as this listener asks, what about the things that maybe bring you pain In this case, a suicide note. But it could also be a discovered diary. It could be being told by someone of something you didn't know about your loved one, and they offered evidence of such. Of course, in the case of suicide, the feelings can be even more complex. Those of you who've listened to self-work before know how passionate I am about the message that those who are all about serving others can at times be hiding their own despair and suicidal thinking. I call it Perfectly Hidden Depression, and I'll have a link to articles on it in the show notes. So let me talk about what I've heard from my own patients and have been my own experience. There can be regret if an action is taken too soon, if decisions about too much of anything are made quickly too soon after a death, before you even begin to work through your grief. But it does happen that someone will throw away or burn or destroy things out of anger or grief that they wish they hadn't. So it's better to wait. But when you do begin considering how having that something in your possession might be harmful to you, certainly a suicide note might be that. For example, you might find in a parent's memorabilia that they kept a letter from an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend. And it's painful to you to think that they kept in touch with them. Something like that. There's also another point. Often when thinking about giving away or getting rid of things that were owned by the deceased or are reminders of them, it can feel as if you're abandoning them. Like somehow you're interpreting your own actions as being disrespectful, as if you're not honoring their presence in your life by keeping everything that was important to them. I certainly had to work through this with my own parents. I almost felt like a burglar going through their house, deciding what would be given away, what would be kept, and what needed to go into the trash. Actually, it was the worst with their everyday things, like a pair of glasses or something that was always on their dresser. Certainly, a suicide note would have even more ramifications or any kind of documentation of how they died, what killed them, etc., like police reports of an accident or medical info from a hospital. Here's my practical view after having worked with many grieving loved ones. You are the one that's living. And if the person loved you, they'd want you to live and remember their life, not their death or how they died. So if the thing that you're keeping keeps their death front and center in your mind, I'd suggest you really consider how much you keeping it highlights their death versus their life. If you decide to let it go, Do some kind of ritual around that act, but then go on with your life and allow your grief to transition into what it needs to become now. There's one more point. Seeing that there was a month that your father knew and was planning to kill himself might be new news to you. I'd take time to work through those emotions before throwing anything away. I hope that advice is helpful. Before our last email, let's hear from Athletic Greens, or AG1, and a wonderful offer they have to help you vitalize your own life. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com selfwork Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So here's the last email from our email bag today. Hi Dr. Margaret. First of all, I want to sincerely thank you for your acknowledgement of the type of depression that's perfectly hidden. My husband has suffered for a decade to the point where it's almost become who he is. Through one of your articles, he was able to see with relief, I think, and acknowledge this and is seeking treatment. My question is in relation to emotional numbness and medication. My husband has been prescribed Lexapro, and he's just started. I know one of the side effects, and a common one at that is emotional numbing. However, he's already quite numb emotionally. Is it possible for medication to help this, or is it likely to make it worse? My own experience of SSRIs and SNRIs has been horrendous, so I'm quite nervous for him and for our family emotionally. So here's my answer. First, I obviously need to say that I'm not a medical doctor, so cannot give medication advice. What I can offer is what I've experienced myself and what I've observed as a clinician in those that decided to try out medications. Or that I have recommended to them because they're stuck. And I think some kind of medication might be helpful. You can check in the show notes because I have several episodes that I've done myself on self-work about medication. And then there's an article by Very Well Mind on antidepressants can make you feel emotionally numb or can they? So I pulled from all that information for my answer. Again, check those show notes. I give you all some really cool material in those show notes. The term mental health professionals most use for emotional blunting is flat affect. Basically, someone cannot express emotions, sometimes actually on both ends of the spectrum. They can't feel or express sadness, nor can they feel or express joy or simple satisfaction. They are completely detached from their emotions, or they're attached mildly or perhaps severely. It can also look like apathy or not caring anymore, and apathy can be very dangerous. Why? Because our emotions serve as ways for us to connect. So if you're emotionally numb, you can have a lack of true connection with others. There's no depth. Everything is sort of on the surface. You don't share a belly laugh, nor do you share a cry. Emotional numbing or blunting can also get kind of rolled up into what's called anhedonia as well, which is the lack of desire to do things that you previously enjoyed. I like to think of those two terms as actually different. One is a lack of an activity and the emotions it used to bring. That's anhedonia. The other is a lack of feeling on the whole. I also want to point out that this emotional blending can happen with depression or anxiety. We tend to think of anxiety as something that is an emotion that gives us all revved up and agitated. But anxiety has a feeling component, but it also has a strong obsessional, ruminative mental component. So you're spending more time thinking than you are feeling if that makes sense. So you can sort of emotionally numb yourself with worry and anxiety because you're spending so much time in a mental state of worry or rumination. Now, certainly, in perfectly hidden depression, the darker side of emotions, the pain, the sorrow, the anger, or the fear, whatever might be there, you have trained yourself to shove those emotions away. It can be a conscious process, but can also be so ingrained that the practice has seeped into your unconscious mind, and you shove those emotions away without realizing what you're doing. It's called compartmentalization, in fact, rigid compartmentalization. Yet, there might be other factors to consider. For example, I worked with a young man in his thirties who was very driven to succeed. And he had his thumb in a lot of pies in community organizations, school administration. He'd taken a leadership role at his work. He'd become an expert in getting people together who could help one another. So he was seen as a gatherer of people with good ideas and good energy. But he didn't feel. He only worked. He might stop for a minute after reaching a goal and feel satisfaction, but it was on to the next goal. His marriage was suffering as parental responsibilities were taken fairly lightly. But he saw nothing wrong. Now, he was a very smart guy, but he couldn't see that his busyness, his need to be seen as a great organizer and communicator, was driving his behavior to the point that his translation of his world was lopsided. Perhaps you can hear the irony. He saw nothing wrong, because he wasn't feeling anything. He could remember a time when he did feel more, but something happened, and the only real feeling he could talk about was a fear of failure or continual pressure. Someone had given him my name due to my work on perfectly hidden depression. Here's the kicker, however. Months into therapy, I found out that there were some other things that were causing him to numb. He admitted to using drugs daily to help with quote-unquote stress. My guess was, and I told him this, that that habit would need to greatly decrease or stop before our work could go any further. And he left therapy shortly after that. I'm not making a comparison between this young man and the listener's husband, but it's important to remember that other things could be going on that might lead to emotional blunting or numbness. Drugs, addictions, thought disorders, some personality disorders. So you need to be aware that other mental conditions could be involved in emotional numbing. The listener's husband has lived with numbness for so long, she says, it's become who he is and wonders what medication will do. The answer is that I don't know, nor probably does his medical doctor. But could his emotional numbness be linked to his mind not functioning well? Or is it protective in some way, keeping certain emotions from rising to the surface? Is his emotional numbness a lifelong habit or a more recent tendency? All these questions are important. But whatever has happened, his medical doctor, by offering him a medication, is trying to say, your mind needs greater mental energy. And when antidepressants work, that's exactly what they do. They offer greater mental energy, greater clarity. I've had people describe it as, it's like I've got more space in my mind. You usually also sleep better, and again, not in all cases, but your down times aren't usually as devastating or severe. They just don't last as long. You certainly need access to your emotions when in therapy or trying to heal. You may be very afraid of them, so they may come out in tiny bits or suddenly rush to the surface. I had a new couple in this past week, and it was a man and a woman, and the man about halfway through the session just let out this sort of cry. And it was because he was so despairing and so afraid of what was going on in his marriage. And it was very appropriate. It didn't last long. And he looked at me and said, I'm not sure where that came from. So suddenly his emotions had rushed to the surface. A good therapist will help you in any case, however it happens, with the only agenda being that you stay safe. Good therapy is never about pushing someone to feel something or go through something that they're not ready for. Perhaps It involves a little gentle persuasion or support, but the patient needs to remain or be able to return to emotional safety. And until someone becomes more accustomed to connecting with emotional pain, those steps may feel very small, but they're, oh, so important. Certainly, antidepressants or any other drugs, when overprescribed, can lead to emotional numbing or flat affect. That's when a good doctor will back off or change meds. And if you wonder about if you're overmedicated... Go get a second opinion, not from a doctor necessarily that's recommended by the doctor you're seeing, but by a doctor that's recommended by friends. Okay, very important. Many doctors, sadly, overprescribe. There are also antidepressants that are more sedating, thus more prone to help with emotions that are running away with your mind, and those that are more innervating, meaning they give you more energy, so sedating versus innervating. And you can talk to your provider about which one is which and is best for you in your own case. Let's focus on this listener's last fear, that her own reactions to meds were bad. Of course, that's going to affect her, but it doesn't determine how he will react The wonderful thing is that there are now pharmacogenetic tests that can determine three things, whether a certain medicine could be effective for you, find out what the best dosage might be for you, and then predict whether you'll have a serious side effect from the medicine. And again, I've included some links to those sites. Psychiatrists mostly have these, but you can also get them and order them yourself. I actually did an episode on self-work about pharmacogenomics. And I'll include that in the show notes. Lots of things to look at in the show notes today. So that's the email bag for today. And I hope that these suggestions have been very helpful to you. I want to thank both sponsors, my new sponsor, Ozark Mountain Medicine and AG1. You know, these guys helped me foot the bill for this podcast, and I couldn't be more grateful. Plus, you get some great products to try for less than you'd be able to talk about a win win. So I hope you'll try their products. I'm always grateful that you're here. I know your time is very precious, and the fact that you spend 20, 25, 30 minutes with me a week means so much to me. If you subscribe at drmargaretrutherford.com, you'll get a weekly newsletter. That contains my weekly blog post and this podcast, and it is a very easy way to keep in touch with me. I promise just one newsletter. Occasionally, I send some other things, but usually not. And again, my email is AskDrMargaret at com, and I'd love to hear from you. Or use the SpeakPipe app that's here in your show notes as well as on the website. I've already mentioned Perfectly Hidden Depression a couple of times today. I'm very excited this year to get more and more speaking opportunities. And if you have a group that you'd like for me to speak to, just email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com and I will be there. Thanks again. Please take very good care in every way you possibly can for yourself and for those you love and for your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self